0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sarah Shaw. And I'm Lydia Jordan. And today we are back with another studio system film. We are in the middle of our rise and fall of the studio system of the Golden Age of Hollywood. Um, We're kind of trudging along with the wartime films. We, We last episode discussed Casablanca, which is kind of a pre-war film and a classic um, critique of the American entry into World War II. And tonight we're going to be discussing kind of a bookend of that and discussing kind of the re-entry into society of soldiers coming back from World War II. So five years have passed since the last movie um, that we discussed, and we're going to be talking about how kind of different the culture and society was um, at that time about people coming back from war. And of course, since it's dry January, we have a really fun little cocktail today. Lydia, what are we drinking?
1: Well, today we are drinking the Nilsen, which is delicious. It's basically like lime and coconut juice. Wait, no. Lime juice and coconut stuff. (laughs) I don't know why I said coconut juice.
0: Lime juice and coconut. No. Yeah. Lime juice and coconut milk.
1: Lime juice and coconut. Yeah. And it's really tasty. It's super refreshing. Um, If you want something, though, that feels like a cocktail like a replacement to a cocktail I would say this isn't it but it is like delightful and refreshing and I'm enjoying it
0: yeah I am as well um I think we both did something a little bit different with ours so the the recipe was pretty simple didn't really call for much and um I added a little bit of uh pear nectar to mine I also modified the ratio because I thought the lime juice to coconut cream ratio was like absurd so it was like yeah it's
1: also not there's not like enough really to fill a glass so I did add I added a little bit of extra juice and I similar to you I added in some pineapple juice because I was like It's just a lot of lime juice to coconut. I don't like my drinks super sweet either, and the coconut is very cloying. So I, I kind of cut down on that and added in some juice. And I also topped mine off with like a little bit of sparkling water just because... It didn't make that much, so I wanted to, like, get it up to the top of my glass.
0: (laughs) No, I love that. And, yeah, I I crushed a bunch of ice, and it was, like, a pretty disastrous situation in my kitchen there for a minute, but we made it. (laughs) Yeah, I have to um, go clean
1: the kitchen after this, because I thoroughly destroyed it today. (laughs) I, um,
0: I did use a little Angostura bitter, so it's not 100%. I didn't have, um, zero proof bitters. I just used, like, two dashes of Angostura, two dashes of cardamom bitters, just for that little extra something. You can't, it doesn't make it taste super alcoholic, so if you're just doing dry January for fun, um, that's a good kind of, like, it you know, if you're, if you're okay with having a little alcohol, that's um, a really uh, nice little addition to um, the palate of the drink. Uh, there are zero-proof uh, bitter options out there if you do want to add bitters. But honestly, you can omit the bitters and the flavors will be just as good as well. Absolutely. It's kind of reminiscent of our Starboard Sour from a while ago.
1: It does feel that way. Yeah, I like this. It's We don't do a lot of drinks that have that kind of tropical feel, so this is refreshing.
0: Yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, but I'm excited to talk about this movie. I actually don't know how you feel about this film. I really love this film. I know that it, it's daunting, it's long, but I think it's very beautiful. So it's-
1: it's a really amazing film. Also, I realized I was totally thinking of a different wartime movie. So when you were like, "Yeah, it's a war film," and I was like, "Yes, American propaganda," you're probably like, "What are you talking about?" Because it's like the <laughs> opposite of that. So my apologies. I don't know what movie I was thinking of, but it wasn't this one. I have seen this one before, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, like Lydia's so... gone insane. I and like, Now I we can't believe we're being be... drunk. The experiment has has happened. Um, I was like, I guess it could be propaganda, but it is kind of a critique about how America, like, treated soldiers coming back. <laughs>
1: it's pretty dark. It's not, like, super happy. You do get a happy ending, but there's a lot of stuff that is pretty heavy in this film. So, um, I loved this movie. It is daunting. It's almost three hours, but... I think that the way that they tell the story is really beautiful, and the fact that they have that much time really allows for these super full characters, especially for the women characters, which we love to see, Um, and it just really creates a super, super beautiful and
0: prescient drama, like, it's great. I absolutely agree, and I, um, I, while this is a longer film, I personally don't, notice when I'm watching it because no. it's never really boring the pacing is actually really excellent in this film it's it starts off strong and it kind of just it's not fast paced but it's a perfect pace for the style of storytelling and the story that they're trying to tell and you really get invested in these characters lives and I think that's the point and so you kind of get lost in the story and I and I don't really feel like I've, I was like Looking at my watch, like, okay, when is this movie going to end? Like, it, I was totally captivated the whole time. There isn't really a moment that it lags. And just kind of to your point, like, I do want to give a big shout-out to Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright. Their performances Ugh. in this movie are incredible.
1: Flawless. Yeah. Flawless.
0: A shout-out to Virginia Mayo for being, like, a total villain in this
1: film. I know, so she well. sucks, and we hate her. But and they do that job.
0: on purpose so that you don't fault Fred for what happens <laughs>
1: Exactly.
0: that am okay begin- with yeah. that.
1: Yeah. We'll That's talk okay. about it. It's going to be so good. So this one is going to be a little bit different. So we'll talk about the plot. um, Or we'll give like, sorry, we'll give like general background. Then we'll jump into the plot. Then I thought it would be good to talk about production because this film did a few things that were super interesting and kind of marked a departure from um, how things in you know, the golden age of Hollywood, typically were run. So I want to talk about that. Then I thought we could flip over to the historical context because there's a lot going on in this film that I think you kind of need to understand the lens for the time, similar to Casablanca. There's a lot that this film is addressing politically that's going on, and there's a lot that happens after this film um, that I think, as a viewer, it really allows you to kind of understand what's happening in this movie even better and then from there we'll go to kind of the analysis and then end with some fun facts and maybe I'll make you cry we'll see because that's apparently my new thing I don't know
0: (laughs) it's also like not hard to make me cry with this movie it's so heartwarming like while it is dark there is a happy ending and it's also just like the moments that are heartwarming are so heartwarming
1: (laughs) Um, I was just gonna say apparently it's not hard to make me cry in general because I've been feeling super (laughs) sentimental lately I was watching Real Housewives of Salt Lake City which trash show Stephen looks over and he was like are you crying and I was like for once I'm actually not but if I was crying at this like we may need to like reevaluate what's going on but I've been crying at everything lately I don't know what's up with that.
0: As for the listeners who don't actually know you very well, this is a new development. <laughs> this, this is, is not, not a common thing. I don't and really for like me it. me too, I have been getting so... I watch like everything I watch. I just watched this... Again, total sidebar tangent, but um, shout out to my favorite CNN docu-series about the uh, American Decades. They released a new one called American Style. Oh, I love those. I know. Well, they released a new one called American Style, and why am I getting so emotional about the style of the 60s and 70s? I don't know, but I am. (laughs) Yeah, I don't
1: know. It's a weird year. Another it's a weird, weird year,
0: <laughs> but yeah, so you're probably going to be able to make me cry talking about this movie because it. I love, I really love this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really incredible. So without further ado, let's jump in because there is quite a bit to cover. So we'll do a quick high level of kind of the background. So the best years of our lives, aka Glory For Me, aka Home Again, question <laughs> mark. <laughs> <laughs> I guess these were other titles that they... Have you used.
0: I like Best Years of World Lives the best.
1: Yeah, me too. Let's just quit while we're ahead Um, is a 1946 American epic drama film directed by William Wyler and starring Myrna Lloyd, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, and Harold Russell. The film is about three United States servicemen who are readjusting to civilian life after coming home from World War II. The film was a critical and commercial success when it was released. It won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score. So, it was a winner, winner, chicken
0: dinner. Didn't Harold Russell anyway? That might be. You might be. We'll talking talk about, about that it. like that. But okay. yes,
1: Harold Russell did win an Oscar, and actually, he won two Oscars. I. Oh. I, the only amazing. the only person to ever win two for the same performance. So, kind of a fun little fact.
0: I feel like when this movie came out, like it just had to be successful because of how like recent the these events happened. And I feel like people just felt this movie. Like, it just was probably relatable to literally every single person.
1: They did. And we'll kind of talk about, too, how Weiler approached it the way he did um, and how it was written to, I think, really speak to the masses. But it was, like, just to put it in terms of context around its success, it was the highest grossing film in both the U.S. and the U.K. since the release of Gone with the Wind. Like, that's Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a big...
0: Oh, wow. So, like, it was not only just a critical and commercial success, it was, like, the movie of the 40s. It was,
1: like, the movie. Um, so, a little bit about the cast. So, Myrna Loy is uh, Millie Stevenson, top billing. She is a queen. We have Frederick March as Technical Sergeant Al Stevenson. We have Dana Andrews as Captain Fred Derry. Harold Russell as Petty Officer Second Class Homer Parrish. Teresa Wright as Peggy Stevenson. Virginia Mayo as Mary Derry. Marie Derry? (laughs) Mary Derry. What is this? the Great British Bake Off. Mary Mary! (laughs) 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 And Kathy O'Donnell as Wilma Cameron. There's actually quite a... It's a large cast. Um, There's definitely a lot of other kind of supporting characters, which I'm not really going to address unless they come up, so... We're going to keep the plot pretty brief because even though this movie is really long, um, the plot itself is pretty straightforward. So let us charge on ahead. So it's 1945, the war is over, and three veterans are returning from their service at the end of World War II. They're traveling together and arrive in their Midwestern hometown of Boone City. And we have U.S. Bombardier Captain Fred Derry, U.S. Navy Petty Officer Homer Parrish, and U.S. Army Sergeant Al Stevenson. Before the war, Fred was a soda jerk, which didn't know what that was before this movie. But basically, he was like the guy at the soda like station. I don't know, Isn't like, like the a soda bartender bar. yeah.
0: for. But soft you're like drinks. at the yeah, basically yeah. yeah. The he, he guy that worked at like, the soda and, like, fountain.
1: Yeah, the soda fountain.
0: Like, the weird little, like, diner that they have in, like, a drugstore in the 50s, or 40s Exactly.
1: He can make you, like, a malted milkshake, which sounds so good right now.
0: (laughs) So he went from being a soda jerk to, like, a straight-up, like, Air Force captain.
1: Yeah, and a captain is a pretty high-ranking official in terms of, like, the Army. Or, sorry, the Air Force. So I think he was, like, you know, he did well. Um... And then you also have, um, oh, sorry. And he married, Mar- Mar- why do I keep saying this? He married Marie shortly before shipping out. So that was like a new relationship before he left for the war. Um, they got married before he Wasn't went Wasn't it kind of
0: like a whirlwind romance? Like they met it and like got married in like a week. So they don't really know yeah, each other at all. They don't really
1: know each other. And then he went off to war for an un- like however long. Um, and then Al was a banker. Um, he's living with his wife, Millie. He has an adult daughter, Peggy, and a teenage son named Rob. And Homer was a high school star athlete He was living with his parents and sister. And he was dating his neighbor named Wilma. The girl next door. Ah, so the girl next door. So cute. So each man faces challenges integrating back into civilian life. Homer, who was the athlete, lost both of his hands during the war, and he returns home with these mechanical hook prosthetics, and he deals with pretty extreme adjustments um, with his family and Wilma as a face of this new physical disability, um, especially as someone who, you know, used his physicality as kind of to make his success. I think you know it's. You know, irony isn't lost on any of us. Um, so, meanwhile, Al is having troubles in his own way readjusting, and the way that he's kind of coping is through excessive alcohol consumption. Um, and adjustments of returning to the banking business are causing tension with his family and also with the associates he works with. Um, Fred is experiencing flashbacks of his bombing raids and has nightmares He becomes frustrated with a wife that he barely knows and an employer who fails to appreciate him um, and who eventually fires him when Fred punches a man in defense of Homer.
0: Yeah, turns out his wife is a major floozy. (laughs) His wife is the worst. Um, Just the worst. (laughs) Yeah, she just wants to like... Parade him around because she's married to a captain and he's like, ma'am, I'm trying to make a living and just like chill because I have major PTSD and I do not want to be around a lot of people. Please leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. So they don't vibe at all.
1: <laughs> no, they don't vibe at all. And I think again, like to your point, it was a whirlwind romance. They didn't really know each other before they got married. And now that he's back from the war, I think he thought that they could jump back in where they left things off and they everybody's changed and things are different.
0: Yeah, And I think the the version of like what he thought their relationship was gonna be after the war was that he was gonna like put that part of his life behind him and start a family and live in like a suburban cul-de-sac and she's like i just want to go party in the nightclubs because i was like a nightclub singer and she's like not ready to have kids and settle down so they're they're definitely like on different paths for sure totally so meanwhile, Fred and
1: Peggy, who's Al's daughter, have become attracted to each other, which puts Fred and Al at odds. Fred eventually learns that Marie has been unfaithful, and seeing no future in Boone City, he decides to catch the next plane out. Near the airport, he visits the air- an aircraft boneyard, which, where he climbs into one of the B-17 bombers parked there, um, which triggers another flashback. He's roused by a work crew boss who agrees to hire Fred to help disassemble the warplanes for prefabricated housing material. Now divorced, um, Fred serves as the best man at the wedding of Homer and Wilma, where he sees Peggy and they reunite. The
0: end! I ship, (laughs) I just ship Fred and Peggy, I ship Al and Millie, they're like the cutest little married couple. I love Al and Millie.
1: The couples we end with are all amazing, and Homer and Wilma... End I up mean, together.
0: Just, like, the sweetest, sweetest relationship ever. I, know. I love when it when he puts the ring on her finger and everyone is like, "Can't." can't I fuck. was bawling.
1: I know. Bawling. Did
0: it. So great. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because it it really shows three different people from three different classes, and like what how their kind of social backgrounds didn't really matter in the war because. Fred is from, like, a really, really kind of blue-collar family, and he was, like, a captain and, like, kind of this, like, war hero that he was really humble about that, but he was, like, this total war hero captain, but, and he was kind of, like, ranked above Fred, or, excuse me, ranked above Al, who is actually, like, kind of an upper-class banker and has this, like, perfect wife with his perfect kids and lives in this, like, beautiful apartment And then you have Homer, who's just, like, the total, like, all-American boy in the, like, you know, suburban house with the girl-next-door girlfriend, and they just all experience this thing that just brings them together, and they didn't know each other prior to the war, but become, like, very quick friends um, upon returning to their home, and it's just, I mean, it's a really interesting show of, like, the, like, three different types of um, kind of PTSD and And, you know, issues and addictions that come from the war. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think what's so brilliant about this film is like, like I mentioned, someone was in the Air Force, someone was in the Army, someone was in the Navy. So again, I think they're kind of trying to capture a a range of experiences, but they also do a good job of kind of picking people from different socioeconomic backgrounds to really show that this isn't just impacting one group more heavily. This is something that America as a whole needs to reckon with. Um, and that everybody's changed. It doesn't just impact you know one group in particular. It, it affects everyone. So can
0: I just quickly point out? And I don't know if you noticed this, but they like throughout the movie just completely forget that Al also has a son. They show him once in the beginning, and then he like never shows up again. Yep. No,
1: don't care about him. He like went to high school and never came back. They were like, yeah, he's oh. like, oh, I'm late for
0: school, and <laughs> then never Bobby. came back. <laughs> but he was like, they literally had go to like they have like family events and he's just not there. <laughs> he's like, That's not actually pressed. so true. That's hilarious. And the whole I mean, the I the way that they like this is what I love about the pacing of this film. I find it so brilliant and how they take time to show these three people individually going home. Like the first scene of them going home and like how homer was just he's super confident but really self-conscious about how other people are gonna like treat him differently and watching him reunite with his family and wilma is really beautiful and then fred going to his parents or his dad and his stepmom's house looking for his wife but she's not there and then he's like sent on this like journey around town trying to find his wife wife. he doesn't (laughs) know where she is and then al reuniting with millie is like the sweetest thing because they're just they it's like so clearly cute. love each other so much like they're like clearly the strongest you know couple they've been married for like what like 20 years or 20 something like that. 20 years, yeah. And, um, they reunite and then they, like, clearly are so excited to see each other, but they have to, like, learn how to be a couple again, and they're just, like, really awkward until they finally just, like, have sex, and it's, like, fine, <laughs> but they're, they're like, so okay, awkward. Good. We got but, it. <laughs> but it's just, like, it. he, but the way that he kind of, like, avoids being alone, these people are, like, avoiding being alone with a civilian person by going out, like, they go out and they get, like, blasted drunk. They-
1: yeah well, they go out together. i think I think that is such an important scene because again, it's I think it really shows the nuanced part of war where it's returning home is supposed to be such a joyous thing, and like we did it, and the war's over. But as you can tell, like everyone has kind of changed, and there's this trepidation around like what if things aren't the same? you know, like and I think they make it really clear, too, when they return to their hometown, like, things have changed without them. There's new football facilities, and, like, things have been improved, and the world has kind of gone on without them, even though they weren't there. And now they're kind of coming back into their lives after being gone for, you know, years. Um, and they kind of – it's it's like there's this fear. Like, there's a joy and excitement, but also this fear of, like, what if what if people don't accept me now that I'm changed? Or what if things aren't the way that I – that I want them to be. So I think I think it's like such a beautiful way that they kind of set that up and again it just creates this empathy with with the veterans.
0: Yeah, and not only have they changed, but the people they left at home have also changed. I mean, like Millie and Peggy are like these independent kind of women that are they've just been trying to like, you know, while they're obviously really excited to have Al home, they were they had this certain lifestyle for a few years where they were just like
1: Existing they doing their and working. Own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, you like
0: worked in a hospital and. in the
1: hospital. And yeah. yeah, they've taken on kind of these duties and have like routines now that are different than before. So, and it's, really, it's super just very Yeah.
0: Very nuanced. That's a good word.
1: Yeah. It's super nuanced. And I think we can talk a little bit more too about how Wyler kind of builds this, I don't know, this sense of empathy with with the character's more in depth in, in the analysis but I think that's one of my favorite scenes and it just sets the sets the movie off with such a such a kind of contemplative tone like it's not what you necessarily think of so let's talk a little bit about the production cuz I actually think how this film got made is really interesting so development of this project began in August of 1944 um and Samuel Goldwyn was actually the one who kind of spearheaded this effort. He was inspired by an article that he read in a 1944 issue of Time magazine um, called The Way Home, which was about a group of 1st Marine Division veterans who experience combat fatigue and just need a period of readjustment after kind of returning from combat. So, Goldwyn hired novelist um, McKinley Cantor to write a treatment based on the article. Cantor would later win a Pulitzer Prize for his Civil War novel, Andersonville, if you've ever heard of that. Um, And he delivered his draft, which was called Glory for Me, um, in January of 1945. The result was not the 100-page document that Goldwyn had ordered, but it was, like, this (laughs) 268-page novel in blank verse. So,
0: um, Goldwyn's like, sir, this is a movie studio. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Kandra was like, Kendra did not understand the assignment <laughs> at all. Oh so, my god,
0: he wrote a two hundred page treatment.
1: Yeah, Jesus. it was in blank first. <laughs> I
0: Yeah, so no, sir. obviously the project no. got
1: shelved because Goldwyn was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? But he later showed the novel to Weiler, who really believed that this film would promote empathy for the servicemen. Um, So Goldwyn then hired three-time Pulitzer-winning playwright Robert E. Sherwood, who was a former speechwriter for Roosevelt, um, to rewrite Cantor's draft. Um, Sherwood also worked on Rebecca, which is a film that we previously covered as well, so fun fact. So. they kind of went back and forth a little bit um, around that, um, and when the screenplay was ready, Wyler put together the ensemble, which included all of the actors that I listed, along with an actual wounded veteran named Harold Russell for one of the central roles, which was pretty... A
0: great choice to, to do that, and honestly, he does a pretty good job for someone who's never acted a day in his life. We'll talk about it in a minute,
1: because I want to give you a little background on Wyler, and then we're going to talk about Russell, because this is literally insane. Literally insane. So, Wyler actually served in the war. He was discharged in December of 1945, where he returned to Hollywood, and he actually joined the ranks of several veteran filmmakers who worked for the U.S. propaganda machine. He had caught war... Footage for use in military training videos, newsreel, historical records, stuff like that. So he was in the field basically documenting the war. That was kind wow, of his okay. role. Interesting. Which is pretty similar, I think, to what Frank Capra was doing.
0: Yeah, I think
1: so. Yeah. Um. As a, And George Stevens and John Huston also had similar experiences.
0: I love William Wyler. He's one of my favorite directors. He's one of the most prolific directors. He directed... Uh, Roman holiday he directed the eras he directed like um the big country I mean he has like every type, every genre this man has done <laughs> yeah, he's very prolific and probably one of the most successful directors of the golden Age or just ever probably
1: absolutely he has such a range and such a such an incredible kind of range of filmography, and I think what's cool too is. I think, you know, whereas Capra, his career really stalled after he came back from service. I don't think that that was the same for for Weiler. I think he went on to have a very successful career. Um, But for him, you know, going through that war and seeing kind of the reality of it really changed kind of his approach to filmmaking. So you see it a lot in this film. It has kind of more of like a documentary film style to it. We'll talk a little bit more, too, about kind of some of the other things that he added in to make this film feel very realistic and and honest um but it's interesting because the war shaped a lot of these filmmakers in different way whereas capra went like very like pie in the sky kind of idealistic like sentimental and and kind of like really looked to like god and like stuff like that um i think that Wyler's approach was much more like we need to capture the reality of what happened and, and, like, document the human experience. And I think that's why this film was so successful.
0: Yeah, and how important that is for the, this era did not make movies like that. And it was, it's a super honest, a super raw human film. I mean, it's a character piece. And for MGM to produce this movie is a really big deal. It is a big deal.
1: Um, It's really a break from what they typically did. But again, I think it's interesting, too, that, it was really samuel Goldwyn who went after this project <laughs> so um what's interesting is you know Wyler was really committed to maintaining authenticity throughout this film and i think no example speaks more to that than his choice to cut cast russell who was a wounded veteran and an untrained actor so weiler had seen um him in a documentary called Diary of a Sarge- Sergeant which was a Signal Corps documentary. Um Russell had been a butcher before the war and he served as a demolitions instructor at Camp McCall in North Carolina. He lost his arms because he was training people how to um I don't not like defuse bombs um and there was a defective fuse that caused TNT to explode, um, in his arms. Oh my God. Yeah. So like pretty traumatic. This didn't happen abroad. This happened in training. Um, and he had to get, um, a bilateral amputation. So, I mean, pretty crazy. Um, although he, I mean, he had to go through so much therapy and I think just kind of processing to get to a good point, but he eventually kind of accepted his situation um, and his kind of outlook and, I don't know, personality um, allowed him to kind of land this role in this documentary and eventually land this role in an actual
0: film. I feel like he's not... I mean, while he is acting, I feel like he's not really... Like, the character personality he's playing is, like, pretty much himself is the is the vibe I get, yeah.
1: He's just playing himself. And what's interesting is that um, Goldwyn actually put Russell into acting lessons. And Wyler was furious when he found out he had him removed immediately. Because he wanted him to have kind of this natural presence. He didn't want someone who was performing for the camera, but just someone who who, like, you know, people could connect with and presented kind of this different side that wasn't typically seen. Like, you didn't see disabled people in films up until this point. So this was really new and, you know, would have been really kind of shocking for audiences to
0: see. It's absolutely groundbreaking. And and I think what's really interesting and kind of a a happy side effect of the fact that he doesn't um, have any acting training is that he like naturally is a little awkward in front of the camera but because his character is supposed to be so self-conscious it works really well like it 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 fits in with what his character is going through and and it just it he's amazing in this movie like he's absolutely incredible i think the acting in this movie overall is really good like Dana Andrews in that scene where he's having he's in the bombardier like plane and having that flashback in that like in that like air force plane graveyard is just um it's so good it's just like that close-up of his face and he's having that ptsd flashback and it's just amazing i mean that the acting in this movie frederick march's drunk acting in this movie 10 out of 10 10 11 out of 10
1: like he nailed it
0: (laughs) Myrna Loy obviously, as always, nails nails it every time she plays like the same type of character in every movie. And I love her. But so. you know what?
1: She does it well and we we love Myrna. She's I love
0: our... I love her in this movie. She's, she's so good. So and so good. Is, Teresa Wright is like such an underappreciated actress. She didn't do many movies and I think she's phenomenal. Like she's every movie she did is like an absolute smash hit. And and I just yeah, I I everyone in this movie is so good.
1: <laughs> Literally so good, and I think that what's interesting too is like again, I think the cast was really well chosen. I didn't see too much about other actors kind of being considered for these roles. I think they kind of got who they wanted, and again, since it's an m g m film um they were able to kind of pick the cream of the crop for this one so you know i didn't I didn't see too much about that, but I feel like every role is cast so well and so thoughtfully. well
0: did you do you know about how Myrna Lloyd got cast in this movie? No. So, I don't know why I know this. I think I, like... I love this. Read, I read it somewhere, but because, I think I just wanted like, a deep dive of her once, because I'm, like, obsessed with her. And, obviously, people will recognize Myrna Loy, if you haven't... From
1: The Thin Man. Yeah.
0: Figured it our out. Our girl, why Nora. Why Lydia and I love her so much is our girl, Nora, from The Thin Man. But, um, she... So, she took a... She was, like, a huge civil rights advocate, and also, like, was real So kind of advocacy was, like, a big thing for her throughout her life, and in the 40s, um, when the U.S. entered World War II, she took, like, a break from acting to, like, focus on the war effort, and was, like, really, really active in the war effort, and she just like, like refused to do movies because she's like, this is not what's important right now. And MGM was like, we, they wanted her for this movie. And she was like, I'm not, I won't do it unless I'm top billing <laughs> this film. And they're like, fine. And then they, and she got top billing. <laughs> I mean, we live for it. Get it girl. I love it. And she was like, I think her and Frederick March had like a pretty equal salary on this film, which I love.
1: <laughs> she's giving Garbo. <laughs> she's giving major Garbo. <laughs> Honestly, that's the kind of energy we all need. I love Um, it.
0: Garbo's just like they'll never go for this. You have to give me my only my last name in big letters, and they're like, "Fine, whatever you say." You're the queen of MGM. Both of these ladies.
1: (laughs) I didn't know that. Well, that's amazing. Um, But from a filming perspective, I think what's really interesting to note, and I think you, again, this is what makes it feel so real and authentic, is the sets were constructed at human scale, which. Is different than what was typically done. So, normally sets were done much larger than how physical environments actually are. And that was so that it facilitates camera angles a lot better. Um, but Wyler was really insistent that this had to feel like a real environment and that it, it shouldn't feel like grand or larger than
0: life. Um, and it sure does feel like a real environment. It sure environment. does. It does. And
1: another thing that's kind of cool is the actors selected their own clothes off the rack and they had to wear them prior to filming, so.
0: Oh my um, god.
1: Yeah. Which to make, is make it feel like lived
0: in or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I love that.
1: Yeah, so everyone feels really comfortable. Again, I think he does a good job of kind of creating that like everyday narrative. Um, yeah. And again, just all those little details kind of come through throughout this. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the historical context. We talked about the context of the US going into the war with Casablanca. But I think what's important to note is that at the end of the war, um, veterans were coming home to kind of a bleak circumstance. Um, Even though the war was over, it hadn't really brought the peace that I think a lot of people were expecting. So the relationship between the US and the Soviet Union was falling apart. And there was an impending Cold War that was ramping up. A lot of tensions around this. Um, there's a civil war in China. Um, and then, of course, with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, this new power of atomic energy kind of came in. Um, and the prospect of nuclear war is was terrifying to everyone um, because now everyone had kind of this technology and the ability to literally wipe out entire cities. So it's a pretty tense time. There was also, um, as American soldiers returning home, they were coming back to a country where there were a lot of conservative politicians that were arguing that fighting the Nazis and Japanese were unnecessary, and really falling back into kind of the isolationist stance that they had had before the war, before the bombing of Pearl Harbor and before U.S. involvement. Um, So, I mean, that's like pretty devastating. Um, This also comes up in the film um the reason that that he gets fired um from being a soda jerk is because he punches that guy to to defend um harold we kind of see this in that scene where they're at the soda fountain um homer is there to see fred um and there's this guy who kind of engages Um, Homer in a conversation and talks about his physical disability um, and basically calls everyone suckers for going to war, which is like wildly inappropriate. But that was kind of the sentiment at the time is that um, some people felt that the U.S. shouldn't have gotten involved, that, you know, it kind of wasn't our war to fight, and that ultimately it didn't really resolve anything that, you know, I don't know it was it was
0: pointless, so yeah, and I think that's the like I think there's a couple of scenes that do that really well in this film, and that's the one that's kind of the the harshest, and we see it so like blunt and blatant in our face about how like there's like an extreme prejudice that exists, and I think it kind of for us as a modern viewing audience of this film it's kind of shocking because our history lessons are very much glorifying. The soldiers and and that their return compared to the return, because I think when we talk about devastating returns from war, we talk more about Vietnam. And when we talk about all of the social projects and social um, safety nets that were set up for soldiers were, you know, helped everybody and everything was okay and there was like no PTSD and everyone was just like glorified and everyone loved them. And so I think that this kind of kind, really, really deconstructs that myth for a modern viewing audience, and I think that scene is a really good one. And another one that kind of hit me really hard was, and, and it, you know, I love Al. Like, I, I think he's a really stand-up character, and I think what he goes through is really honest, and I think, you know, he really leans on his, he ends up really leaning on his wife for help with his alcoholism. And one scene that you really just, you can tell the war affected him in a way where he's like, I need to be better, is when he's back working at the bank and he gives that soldier the loan that he's, the guy isn't actually approved for, he's not qualified for because he needs the money, and he gets in trouble, and then he, he kind of, you know, his, the bank loves him, but they're a bunch of these conservative kind of greedy money, money bag guys, And when he goes to that dinner, he gives that like really ironic speech that they take very well, but he, his wife and him both know that's not what he really meant, but he says it in a way where it makes the bank think that he's really like a big proponent of capitalism and of the bank and he wants to do everything for the bank when what he's actually underlying saying is we need to do better in making these soldiers return more feasible for them. Yeah,
1: and understanding that, like, these are people who put their lives on the line, and I think he talks about, like, he might not have collateral, like, he might not have the money, but, like, I've seen... I've looked into people's faces, and I've seen their character. Like, that's something that you learn during the war, and, like, this is someone that I know is going to pay that back doubly hard because he knows how to work, you know, and he knows how to work hard, and, like... Yeah, I think it's, it's such a beautiful moment, and it's not something, again, that I think if you don't really have that context around what was going on, you would understand quite as much because so much of what we've heard of World War II really glorifies that. And I think in my mind too, there was a bigger length of time or a longer length of time between the end of the war and people returning home and then kind of the start of the Cold War, but that was really pretty immediate. So there wasn't like this period of like jubilation, like yes, you had V-Day, which obviously was like, one day, (laughs) but I I think the shift was pretty quick, and so there wasn't kind of this, like, you know,
0: it it, it kind of, people came back to, like, a whole different situation. So from one enemy to another enemy that they painted in the U.S. as being even more scary, because it was more, um, uh, it was more, like, here in, present in our country, and I think that it kind of dimmed the the victory celebrations really quick and snuffed it out a little bit faster than we think that we learn about absolutely um and then
1: as part of the cold war ii um the once temporary house of un-american activities committee which we covered in our first episode talking about the rise and fall of the studio system this now becomes a permanent fixture um and it's meant to expose disloyalty on American soldier, or sorry, it's meant to dis. what am I saying? It was created in 1938, but it was meant to expose disloyalty on American soil. And what's interesting is that the best years of our lives actually became one of the many targets of the HUAC. Oh. Um, yeah because that's
0: surprising because it's a I mean I guess I understand I mean it is like a it's a critique but it's It's also like a pretty heavy like glorifying not glorifying but like support of soldiers in the American life
1: yeah
0: it's a little bit surprising
1: I was also surprised but fuck HUAC by the way (laughs) oh the worst (laughs) yeah we hate them anyways but I thought that was super interesting so McCarthyism again came to prominence kind of after this period, um, and unfortunately, this film was one of the ones that they, you
0: know, blacklisted people over. So wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. That's too bad, and I'm glad that it still won a bunch of awards and was really, really yeah. successful. Me
1: too. I mean, I think it definitely got the success it deserved, and it's telling such a such an important part of kind of the American like reality uh, post war.
0: It's interesting that this isn't a movie that people know about very much now like it's not like it 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 was for how popular it was and how good it still is today it's like not a classic that just like everyone knows like Casablanca or like Gone with the Wind or something like this movie is so good and I don't know why it's not one that people know about
1: yeah I mean I feel like this should be required watching especially in history class like um U.S. history teachers where you at because I feel like this again it's such an such an interesting way to look through the lens of how America was processing post-war and kind of everything that was going on. It's, yeah, it is interesting that it's not more popular, especially how popular it was at the time. Kind of weird. Um, So good, too. God, so good. So we talked, like, big picture, like, political and historical landscape, but I think it's clear in this film there was a lot that changed in the American nuclear family that I think – we should address um so we have women who had entered the workforce um yeah they did and you know like rosie the riveter hey girl they took on all these responsibilities and were a massive part of the success of the war effort but once soldiers returned home they were expected to become homemakers again so this caused a lot of tension
0: um yeah and that's the one thing about um, Marie Derry that, I'm like, we can't fault a girl for wanting to just, like, vibe and work. She was a bit of a bitch about it, but, like, realistically, like, yeah, I get it. Like, she wants to... She, like, was loving being a nightclub yeah. singer and, like, making more money than Fred made. Like, she made more money than him, and then he... Then she had to, like, come home and be a housewife and was, like, miserable. And so I kind of get why she... Was so mean, but she was terrible. <laughs> but she's yeah. still terrible. But like that's a that's a that compared to like Peggy. Like it's a really interesting, yeah. it's an interesting position. foil.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know that they really paint. I think Peggy does get kind of close. Like I think she's clearly become super independent during the war effort. Um, but I think you know there's still this um tenderness and like sympathy for Fred that kind of doesn't put her quite in that boat. That you know paints like exactly the picture of what's going on I think maybe Marie is like a little bit closer um because even though there was a huge baby boom following the war the divorce rate also skyrocketed (laughs) so that's
0: not surprising to me yeah I want to say my favorite line from this movie is like when I don't I don't remember what she exactly says but when Peggy so when Fred basically Fred and Peggy are like in love and they want to like be together but Al confronts Fred about it and he's like you can't you're married, like you can't fuck around with my daughter. Like when you're married, and Fred, like loves her so much, so he's just like, you're right. Like I, sh- she deserves better than that, and is I want to respect her, so he like breaks up with her. And there's that line that she tells her mom because she had told her parents that she's gonna break up their marriage, and she yeah. comes into her mom and she's like, my career as a homewrecker was short lived. It's like that. so I just, good. I love that she told her parents. She's like, I'm gonna break up that marriage so funny and she literally so says that to them she's no, like i'm I know. gonna break up the marriage i mean we love a modern woman i fucking what can love I say? peggy she's so funny she's the best
1: peggy's amazing in this movie you never question it for a moment you're like yes of course break it up yeah peggy. break up that marriage get peggy. out of there like get out honestly, of there Marie.
0: someone needs to like, for said. the love of god but i don't think it's because like Marie is, like, a bitch to Fred, but I don't think it's because either of them are bad people. I think it's just, like, Fred and Marie should not have been married. Like, they just are not, they do not want the same thing at all. No, I mean,
1: I think it was very much that, like, whirlwind romance, but, like, they don't have a relationship where they've ever had to work through anything hard together. Like, I think it's just such a, it was such a young and fresh relationship when he went to war that there wasn't even, like, a foundation to go back to. Like, there no. wasn't a relationship. <laughs> and we
0: don't even see their relationship prior no. to the war. Like, he comes back and they're already married, but he's like, I don't know where she lives. So.
1: Yeah. Hey, girl, where you at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, a little bit interesting there. Um, this is this is interesting, too, because I don't think that I knew this, but after World War I... Um, there was kind of a similar situation where a lot of the returning servicemen found themselves jobless and without homes. Um, this led to a march on Washington, D.C. in 1932, um, which was called the Bonus Expeditionary Expeditionary Forces March. Um, and basically Truman's administration tr- tried to prevent another post-war transitional disaster by establishing job programs. But they really ultimately failed to protect the returning soldiers adequately and most most people who were unemployed in 1946 half of the unemployment population were veterans so
0: yeah i mean i think they kind of show it in that one scene that we just discussed where you know we have this idea of like the gi bill worked but it only works if you have collateral and a lot most of those people didn't have collateral collateral
1: yeah um, and we see it with Fred, like he was super high ranking in the military, but he comes back and a lot of, a lot of veterans face this where they had to settle for lesser paying jobs or positions that just didn't suit their abilities. So even though he was super adept um, in the Air Force, he's going back to essentially like a minimum wage job. He was making, I think he says like $400 a month in the army, and now he's getting paid thirty-two fifty a week, which is
0: like nothing. Significant you know? different, Yeah,
1: yeah. Moreover, and I didn't know this, um some civilians really stigmatized returning soldiers worrying that they would take up available jobs, which is so lovely. <laughs> it's like you guys are the worst.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I didn't well, know that. I didn't know that. That's um, really interesting.
1: And then finally, as we see with Fred, um, psychological strain on veterans was quietly disregarded. Um, What's interesting is now, I mean, we call it PTSD. This was called shell-shocked or battle-fatigued after World War I. Um, In 1940s, the terminology was called a gross stress reaction. But what we have come to term um post-traumatic st- stress disorder, that really didn't come out until the 1970s um and was used to describe Vietnam war veterans. So even though there was like an awareness of it, I don't think that there was an understanding of what that actually meant. And I think we see this with Marie where she basically tells him to get over it. Like yeah. there wasn't help, there wasn't psychological help, and there wasn't even really a diagnosis. Like gross stress reaction, like is definitely yeah. minimizing what's
0: happening here. She tells him to get over it, and he's just like, "I, I can't, I can't do that." <laughs> he's like dreaming about his friends that died like every night, and I mean, I think the way Peggy handles it is obvious. I think they do it on purpose because they want you, to, they make you like Peggy over Marie to you know make that relationship okay, but her reaction to it is like the, the actual, like correct reaction to just help him and then, you know, not talk about it and pretend like it didn't happen to make him feel comfortable. Whereas Marie is just like super mean. Like she's really mean to him about it. She is. And I think again it comes from like there
1: is no foundation in the relationship. Like she just is like wants to have fun. You know, yeah, she really doesn't care talk. about I mean him. they clearly no. like
0: aren't communicating.
1: No, definitely not. So I think we talked quite a bit about how Wyler was able to create empathy between the audience and the veterans. I think a lot of this is through a very, um, like, documentary film style. The way that he chooses to film it really puts everything in perspective. It would have been, I think, pretty familiar for people who watched wartime films. Um, The style would have been kind of similar. And again, everything he does is really just to kind of show that this is impacting everyone, from you know, all all different ranks of the military and air force, um, kind of all different socioeconomic classes are represented here. Um, but I think that what really sets the tone for this movie that we didn't talk about too much is the beginning scene where they're in the plane and each of them are kind of sharing their fears about coming back from the war. I think that's kind of the first time where you see that, like, they're the only other ones who can understand what that feels like. Um, And I think that immediately establishes the tone for the audience around what it is that's going to be happening during this film and kind of breaking, I don't know, like kind of breaking away at some of the like misconceptions or kind of preconceptions of what's going to be talked about.
0: Yeah, and it very quickly establishes their bond with one another. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: And then I think each, each man himself really faces a a different kind of hardship and shows kind of some of the ways that, you know, veterans are coping about reentering society and kind of some of the fears and um, like hurdles that they're facing. Like Al with his alcoholism, Fred with, you know, his inability to find like a good paying job and his PTSD. Um, And finally we have Homer who, you know, just feels really helpless from his physical disability. And I I think he's struggling because he feels like, you know he has this. He's like a burden to his family and to the ones that he loves. Um, yeah, which is we see that so how
0: he pushes um, Wilma away. Wilma away until she's like, "No, like I'm here. I'm in it for the yeah. long haul."
1: And I think that one of the most like intense and kind of heart wrenching scenes is when he takes her up to bed, um, and and I think like it's just so like the way that Wyler captures this is just so beautiful and it's so heartfelt where he's, I mean, he's just like laying it out there. And I think just like his fear and his pain is just like so raw. And he's, I mean, he's worried because he's like, doesn't feel like he can perform as a good husband. And so I think that what's so interesting about this scene is I think that there's so many like nuances and kind of like layers to this about what it implies about what is the role of a husband and, like, the duties that they're expected to perform? Um, but also, like, you know, his fears that, you know, he's going to, you know, not be able to provide for Wilma in the ways that that he wants to and also that his physical disability is going to be, like, too much for her to handle. Um, and so it's just, oh, it's so...
0: The scene is great. It's so good. It's just really honest and raw and I think it's it it establishes this like deep bond between I mean they already clearly have it but it just shows like how much these two people like love each other that they're being so open and communicative and how much she's in it and she cares and she's willing to work with him on this and he's finally like he under it it takes this for him to kind of understand that like she can handle it and then he can kind of open up to her after this scene and i think it's really pivotal in his character arc for sure.
1: Yeah. And i think again we talked about this kind of early in the film but i love the female roles in this movie. Oh, me too. Not not Marie, but i think she does like serve a purpose and i think she represents kind of something that was happening at this time. But yeah. i think that what's really interesting is each woman in this film really does is there as like a support system for their their veteran, um, but each of them goes about it in a really different way. So Millie just accepts that Al has changed and that she's going to adapt, kind of like she always has in their marriage. That it's a partnership and that you you just kind of have to adjust to the reality of the situation. So I think that that's kind of beautiful. Um, You have Peggy, who's a modern woman, um, but she refuses to be patient. Like, she loves Fred, um, and so, like, her saying that she's going to break up this marriage is, like, pretty shocking, especially considering, like, the production codes at this time. (laughs) Yeah, and saying
0: that, and she's, like, saying that to her mom and dad, which is interesting, and I think, like, kind of to your point on, on Millie and Al, and just to show, like, how kind of like really unusual and progressive their relationship and their marriage was for that time and when when Peggy's kind of like talking to them about Fred and she's like you guys wouldn't understand you've always had this like perfect marriage and you've never had anything wrong and they're just like oh girl like and the then amount it of kind times of,
1: we wanted to get divorced like you have no idea
0: <laughs> yeah and like the exactly kind of like what you're saying about Millie and she you know learns has to learn how to adapt and so how so does Al and they say that like the amount of times that we've like said I hate you and the amount of times we've had to like re-fall in love with each other and it just like goes to show how like what when we see their relationship without without that you know it could look like Al's going down this, like, drinking rabbit hole and it's going to ruin their marriage. But when they talk about that, like, there is this deeper unspoken respect and, like, communication and trust between those two that they've clearly worked on for like 20 years. And so that's there. Like they're they're like solid. And and just how like you said like that represents kind of like how when you love someone you have to love all of them and every part of them, the bad stuff and the good stuff, and learn how to adapt and communicate your needs and and what the other person needs as well. And I think like I just their relationship is really beautiful in this movie.
1: It's one of my favorites. And I think what's interesting about the women in this film is none of them really force the men in this movie to change they just kind of accept them as who they are and and I think that what's kind of the message out of that all is like the soldiers have to learn how to kind of process their reality on their own like it's not something that anyone can do for them but they have these support systems who allow them to be authentic and allow them to like be real about what they're experiencing and like that's what allows them to like move forward so I think that's kind of cool and beautiful and each of the women kind of do it in their own way well that's kind of all I have for analysis anything you want to add
0: no I mean I just yeah I think you kind of you kind of nailed it and and I think like each every aspect of this movie is like a total rule of three (laughs) like it's definitely like it represents one two three of like every walk of life even in the women different approaches at the partnerships different socioeconomic classes different ranks in the military different branches of the military different different um mental health struggles that these people went through and physical struggles that they went through coming back and I I just think that there is there isn't a movie a humanistic movie that is as nuanced as this like I just it's so beautifully made and so minimalist about it and that's what I think makes it so special and so timeless cuz the the things that it talks about and the feelings and the struggles that people go through those never go away and I think it's it's not about I think what's beautiful about the film is it's not trying to tell the audience like how to fix people it's just telling showing the audience like okay the people everyone soldiers and non-soldiers are different and we just accept that and move on and kind of learn how to adapt
1: you nailed it it's so beautiful well, let's jump over to some fun facts and then we'll wrap up this long and beautiful episode.
0: <laughs> I love I love it. I love fun facts.
1: I love Fun Fact Corner. Um, I thought this one was kind of interesting. <laughs> you know I love a fun fact.
0: Um, I love Fun Fact Corner. So
1: the title doesn't really show up in any of the dialogue, But it does come close during the final blow-up between Marie and Fred when she says, I've given you every chance to make something of yourself. I gave up my job, and I gave up the best years of my life. So,
0: wow. Yeah, the title definitely has layers, for sure.
1: Yeah, so that's where that comes from, and I think there you go. Um, Okay, so another fun fact is to give the film kind of that documentary documentary-style realism. Um, Weiler drew members of the crew, um, props, grips, mixers, etc., from the ranks of World War II veterans. So a lot of veterans were employed on this film. Oh! I know. We love to hear it. So sweet. He's
0: employing people because they couldn't find
1: jobs. I know, and also because they knew how to do it, because they all worked together during the war and they had to learn all these special skills. Oh my support, God. it's support a country. Crying. I know. It's amazing. Um, another wow. fun fact is that just like in the movie, Harold Russell was engaged to marry his high school sweetheart during filming. Stop. Shut and
0: fuck up. Virginia Mayo,
1: <laughs> who played Marie Derry, and Steve Cochran, who played a very minor role of Cliff in this film, they stood up for him at his wedding. Oh my god, that's so cute. <laughs> it's <was> really <laughs> cute. Um, And then finally, and this is the one that's going to make you cry, and it's actually amazing that you brought this up earlier, so Al's reunion with Millie was actually based on Wyler's reunion with his beloved wife, Tolly. Stop. I know. So he based that whole scene where he comes in the door and they hug and it's like perfect and like iconic um, on like how he reunited with his wife after he was gone for over a year in the war. Oh, I know. so I mean, we beautiful. Cry <laughs> oh my God. me crying. I'm crying,
0: guys. <laughs> I, that scene and the way that they use depth of focus is so it's, good. It's masterful.
1: Like that scene... I, I will mean, just
0: go rewatch that scene tonight probably. Yeah, and
1: now that you know <laughs> the background so... too, like it was based on
0: that because he walks in and then he tells his son to be quiet. I know, and then he tells and his then, daughter like, to
1: be quiet.
0: And then <laughs> the, she's in the kit. Millie's in the kitchen and she's like, "Who's at the door?" And she knows that no. One, and then she realizes it's him, and then she runs out and then they run down the hall towards each other. Aww. I know. And it was real. Oh my god, I'm crying.
1: And he's obsessed with his wife and we love it. <laughs> Warm fuzzies. To wrap it
0: up. <laughs> that is really beautiful. I love that. Wow. Thank you for that. That just made me smile so big. I
1: know. Well, hopefully um, we all learned something. I learned a lot. I love this
0: movie. Would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I think that this is a really important film um, Like, I think it is a classic, and I think it should be more widely watched, because it tackles issues that I think are still very pressing, and it does capture such a unique kind of point in American history that's, I think, worth revisiting and having awareness of. And the way that it approaches it, it is in such a human and authentic way that it does feel very timeless, um, and just very real. Um, I loved this movie, so...
0: I think this is a must watch I absolutely agree. I actually think this is one of my favorite movies we've talked about it's i i I absolutely love this movie i um I don't have many critiques about it. I think that it's beautiful. I think that it's so real raw and and really, really honest about how people were feeling and I think you can tell that the people that worked on this movie all cared a lot about it and felt all of these things and I think that's just what makes it so great and I and I agree with you I think this is a total classic more so than things that are considered classics actually I would I I would argue and I would opine (laughs) that um this should be more widely watched and I highly recommend it to to anyone and everyone not even if you're just trying to get into classics I think this is a a foundational film.
1: Could not agree more. So, really like this film, so glad we got to watch it this week.
0: World War II's a little tough, it's a little bit hard, it's kind of a darker subject, so we thought we'd pivot and talk about a different side of the studio system, one more more funny. Um, next week we're going to be discussing a little bit about the, not evolution, but um, the role of the screwball comedy One of our
1: favorite genres. One of our
0: favorite genres in the studio system and how that kind of developed. We talked a bit about the early development and creation of the screwball comedy with our episode on uh, It Happened One Night. Next week, we're going to be discussing a little bit more about um, movies that came later, screwball comedies that came later. Two of um, my favorites. I don't know about you, but... oh. Oh yes. <laughs> we're gonna be discussing. I think the movie that well, both of these movies, if you aren't into old movies, you will like these two movies you will because like they're so good. Cause I think the the one number one critique of an old movie is that they're too slow. Neither of these movies are slow in any way, shape, or form. Wow. So next week we're gonna be discussing His Girl Friday and something like that. Hi! Oh, it's
1: gonna be I mean the lineup, I told you, we told you, this lineup is you. fire this month. So, so two more bangers coming It's going to
0: be great because His Girl Friday is one of my favorite comedies of all time and Some Like It Hot is one of Lydia's favorite comedies of all time. And so we're going to be just we're having going so all much in. fun. It's yeah, gonna we're going to so have great. so much fun. So <laughs> thank you for joining us on our journey through studio system in world war Two. um we really hope you guys are enjoying this we hope you like uh these these episodes and we really hope that you take a minute to go watch these films we find them really important and um in the meantime in
1: the meantime you know where to find us you can find us on instagram at Hitchcock Happy Hour, where we post lots of fun things. We post stills, short clips from the movies that we're watching. We post drink recipes and cocktail photos, so you know just what to sip along with us. We also started TikTok, so you can watch us on
0: TikTok. If you want to know how to make what um, what we're sipping on, Lydia guides us beautifully through that Thank on TikTok. You.
1: Thank you so much. Um, So you can Catch us on TikTok. We usually post our recipes a little early. So if you feel like you want to try something new and are excited to see what we've been up to, definitely check that out. And then finally, rate, review, and subscribe. We love hearing from you guys. And your support means everything. Um, The more reviews we have and kind of the more success that we have, um, the more that we can continue to grow this into something super awesome. Um, And you can also now rate on Spotify. So if
0: you listen on Spotify, uh, you can give us five stars.
1: Because you love us.
0: And we appreciate it. Thank you. And until next week, when we discuss screwball comedy, cheers. cheers!